We respectfully acknowledge the University of Arizona is on the land and territories of indigenous peoples. Today, Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes, with Tucson being home to the Autumn and Yaqui. Committed to diversity and inclusion, the university strives to build sustainable relationships with sovereign native nations and indigenous communities through education offerings, partnerships, and community service. episode of the PA Path Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Lohenry, and we are glad you could join us as we seek to better understand the PA profession. What we have really focused on in the past couple of years is really building up the infrastructure to allow for a more powerful presence in Washington. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us. It is good to be back after a brief break to set up our new studio near the Catalina Mountains in Southern Arizona. We are back with season two, episode 35, and we are quickly approaching our 10,000th download for our podcast. Steph and I are really thankful for the interest in our profession and the issues that our applicants, students, and educators face in the world of healthcare and higher education. Today, we speak with Tyler Smith from the Physician Assistant Education Association about the importance of advocacy in government relations. Tyler is the Senior Director for Government Relations at PAEA, and he shares his perspective from working with our professional educational organization over the past five years. We talk about student involvement in advocacy and the key issues that PAEA is advocating for. We also talk about how easy it is to get involved to advocate for our profession, our communities, and our patients. As always, you can learn more about our guest on our website at papathpodcast.com. Well, Tyler, thank you so much for taking the time to share with us uh, kind of what PAEA is doing in the advocacy area. I think our listeners will be really interested to hear where some of the challenges are. And also one of the things for me that I think is really, uh, I hope we'll talk about is the length of time it takes to get change in Washington, D.C. People may or may not be surprised how long it can take to get a bill to get through. So, but let's start talking about you. Will you yeah. tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up serving in a role with the Physician Assistant Education Association? So um, I think I'm a little bit uh, of a unique story where um, I didn't happen upon the PA profession. I actually had a quite a, a bit of awareness of the profession growing up. So uh, I was from rural Pennsylvania. Uh, that was where I, I was born and raised. And it was very much inculcated uh, in high school for me, even in some of the lower grades of the possibility of you know pursuing the PA profession as a possible career. Um, that was never for me. Um, I had always been interested in politics and advocacy. And I had always thought that I would potentially go into political campaigns. So when I went to undergrad, I moved to DC with that thought in mind. And I eventually considered that uh, maybe the campaign lifestyle wasn't the best fit for me, potentially. Um, it, it's really tough hours, it's very low pay. And so um, during undergrad, I started looking for some internships in the political science arena because that was still you know, my, my area of interest. And so the way that I happened upon health policy is I started my first internship at the AIDS Institute. Um, I'd always had an interest in HIV work. 
um, and work with underserved communities. And that's really how I got sort of exposed to this world of advocacy in DC, right? So um, it was there where I first did my uh, large grassroots advocacy day. Um, it was there where I first started getting exposed to some of the different players in DC from associations to agencies to the, the legislature. And after that, I really started to look for other opportunities to really build out sort of my health policy bona fides. So I got roles at the American Society of Anesthesiologists. Um, I worked for a lobbying firm, Horizon Government Affairs, for a while. And then I spent some time on Capitol Hill um, in the office of Senator Ron Wyden. So I really made the, the rounds in the health policy circles in D.C. And so when I was looking for uh, you know, a first shot out of college, PAEA came up. And having had that background from when I grew up about what a PA was, I thought it was a great opportunity to kind of meld my interest in health policy with sort of this field that I had seen as uh, really a, an emerging area of growth. And so I uh, got the job at PAEA. Um, I've been here for the past five years now, which is hard to believe. Um, and it, it's been an absolute pleasure just getting to, to work with this association. That went by really fast. Yeah. <laughs> It's hard to believe. It's hard to believe. It feels like we were just planning the USC advocacy trip uh, a few minutes ago. It turns out it was like four years ago. I know. I know. that. Yeah. That's amazing. Wow. Uh, and so what is your current role with PAEA? Yeah, so um, I'm the senior director of government relations. And so um, in that role, I'm responsible for really overseeing all the association's advocacy work. So um, our direct lobbying efforts with Congress and the administration, um, our grassroots days with USC, and then also some of the, the smaller events we do, like our student health policy fellowship. And a lot of um, the work that we've been doing lately has really been around capacity building. So we have been increasingly doing advocacy training sessions for programs. Um, we've been advancing faculty nominees to advisory committees uh, at federal agencies. So that's really been a, a new area of responsibility as well. What do you think has been the greatest growth area for PAEA when it comes to advocacy work? Yeah, I think um, so. What we have really focused on in the past couple of years is really building up the infrastructure to allow for a more powerful presence in Washington, right? So I think where we had been in the past was assuming that we were going to be the 800-pound elephant in the room where we hadn't put in the necessary resources to build up our cadre of PA advocates and really put PAs in positions of power. So that's why I and um, Dave Cahey, who I had the, the privilege of working under for a number of years, has really put emphasis into growing our training programs, uh, putting PAs in positions of power so that we can really increase our influence prior to trying to move uh, significant pieces of legislation. Yeah, I think one of the things that maybe our our listeners uh, would be surprised by is the number of aides that work on Capitol Hill that actually know people that are in PA school or yeah. or thought about being a PA themselves. And so uh, that's always been surprising to me when we go to make a pitch. They are, oh, yeah, I'm totally familiar with PAs. And I think that's getting to be more and more common. Is that your experience? Yeah, I think certainly even in the past five years that I've been doing this work, I've had to do less and less of an educational part of the pitch, which really equips me to provide um, more time to the policy side, explaining um, some of our priorities like clinical site access, diversity in the profession, um, and other things rather than just sort of doing the basic ground work. 
And, you know, to your credit, a lot of that has been made possible by the work that you've done by getting the USC trip set up. I always tell your students when they come to DC and some of the other students that we bring it, they're a part of this years long process of increasing awareness of the profession and then ultimately creating the infrastructure that's necessary to, to move the bills that we want to see. Thank you. Thanks. I mean, I think my time with PAEA on the board really woke me up to the possibilities of advocacy. Mm-hmm. I think prior to becoming active with PAEA hitting the hill and, and pitching the, the PA profession, I, I just figured that these experts in government knew what PAs were sure. um, and either didn't care or you know cared enough to allow some growth in the profession, but not a lot. But the truth is, they really don't know what PAs are. And in fact, they're, you know, from my experience, they're approached by so many different stakeholders with with different varying degrees of challenge that it's impossible for them to kind of keep up on top of things. Yeah, and I think that that kind of speaks to a, a different way that we've approached advocacy over the past couple of years as well. So historically, um, like I've said, we have tried to move bills that um, very narrowly benefited certain uh parts of the PA profession or, or address needs that were specific only to the profession. But I think one area where we've had quite a bit of evolution is identifying opportunities of interest on the Hill. So um, whether it's the opioid crisis, whether um, it's the maternal mortality disparities that we've seen for a number of years, and really explaining how PAs need to be part of the solution and how we can contribute um, through the, the unique capacity of the profession. Yeah, I think when we have uh, worked to integrate ourselves into places where the Hill is already interested, we've had a lot more success than when we're just trying to push the you know, things that are important only to, to our specific cohort. Do you think that that then plays a role in terms of if you get one or two victories, then things start to, to build up in other areas? Yeah, I think so. I think, again, this goes back to the importance of the infrastructure work, right? So, you know, a lot of the work that we do is just building relationships with congressional offices, endorsing their legislation, um, putting out social media and things that are important to them. And I think, you know, when you help people on the Hill and you meet them where they're at, they're more inclined to work with you on things that are are your particular priorities. So um, I think what we've certainly seen is uh, a cascading effect over the past couple of years as we've been more active in the rural health debates, as we've been more active in some of the public health responses, having those relationships built up and then providing a platform for, for future collaboration. Yeah. So if I'm a student listening to this and I, and I don't go to a program that actively does advocacy, how do I get involved in becoming educated on, on the process? Yeah. So um, we have quite a few resources available on the PAEA website. So I think one of the uh, most helpful places to start would be our grassroots action network. That's not under one of the tabs on the, the website. And that's a resource where we provide monthly policy updates on what we're working on and then also what some of the other grassroots advocates across the country are, are doing. Um, we disseminate action alerts on uh, you know, pressing public policy developments that allow people to contact their representatives pretty easily. And then we also, if you're interested in building capacity, not only for yourself, but for your program and for your uh, you know, fellow students, um, we provide a platform to request advocacy trainings where PAEA staff can come to speak to your program um, to talk about the process and, and other ways to get involved. So that's definitely um, probably the, the biggest resource that I would, I would point out to them. And you've also developed a health policy fellowship for students that has been really popular so far. Is that right? 
Yeah, that's another thing where it, it's hard to believe um, we are moving into our ninth cohort this year. Um, so the Student Health Policy Fellowship is one of the most intensive opportunities we offer for um, grassroots training and, and advocacy development. So it's a competitive process that we run every year from May through July. Um, this year's cycle is actually opening up May 2nd. And um, after the competitive cycle, all of our fellows participate in a three-day workshop, either um, virtually, as will be the case this year, or in D.C., which we hope to be the, the case when the Hill opens up again. And really what we're trying to do with uh, the fellowship is provide an intensive experience where um, all of our students who are selected get to hear from various experts in VA education and practice policy. Um, we bring in speakers from the legislative and executive branches to give their perspective on what they hope to see from advocates. And then we culminate with um, Hill visits where all the fellows get to meet with their um, senators and representatives or, or their staffers. And then the really neat thing about the fellowship is it has a practical implementation component beyond the Hill visits. So um, all of our fellows are responsible for uh, executing a community-based advocacy project. So that um, can, can be you know, something as simple as inviting a member of Congress to your PA program to give them uh, toward the facility and an opportunity to interact with the students uh, to something as complex as planning your own Hill Day in collaboration with your uh, state chapter or constituent organization. So um, it's definitely a, a program that's that's very close to my heart. I'm really thrilled that we've had a little over 100 people participate thus far. And the neat thing that we're starting to be able to assess is sort of like long-term outcomes. So um, how many of our students are going on to serve in like their state chapters or their legislative committees or um, even uh, positions of leadership in the clinical setting. So um, really exciting and and one of our, our keystone programs. So in, in that instance, you I would imagine that the people that go through that training are some of your best advocates when you have a hot topic issue that comes up that you put out over the grassroots network. Yeah, I would say so. Um, we have a pretty dedicated cadre of, of students who uh, we can count on to mobilize whenever we send out an action alert. I would also say the same for faculty. You know, there, there are tons of faculty across the country who are, are really passionate advocates. Um, Tony Miller, you, of course, um, Mike DeRosa, a, a lot of people who um, either informally or, or formally as part of our, our government relations committee are, are working to advance the profession. Yeah, that's great. So the Health Policy Fellowship, can you talk a little bit about the, for program directors, maybe the expectations of those students and, and what the cost would be to a program? Yeah, so um, fortunately, the, the cost tends to not be significant. So um, like I said, it's a three-day obligation. So uh, the students who uh, apply and then get accepted have to be excused from either their, uh, their rotations or their didactic year responsibilities for those three days. In terms of um, other obligations. So we have every student when they apply, identify a faculty mentor who can help them on the ground execute their projects, whether that's um, navigating sort of the institutional bureaucracy when you're trying to bring a member of Congress to your program or the like. But um, there are no costs really associated with the fellowship from a financial perspective. Um, most of the projects that the students choose to execute um, only require uh, some time on their part. Um, so it, it's fortunately an opportunity that we've intentionally tried to make as easy as possible for any program that wants to participate to do so. And what are some of the benefits to the program that you've seen occur from the past 100 fellows? 
Yeah, so I think um, one of the things that we focus on with the the fellowship is obviously um, cultivating some of these uh, public policy advocacy skills, but we also have a dedicated leadership curriculum. So we have content that, uh, you know, whether we bring in speakers uh, from the the PA world or other uh, organizations where uh, PAs are leaders, we have uh, them focus on you know what why it's important for PAs to take an active role, whether that's in policy or in the clinical environment, and also why uh, students are responsible to be advocates for their patients, even if they don't choose to be advocates in the, the public policy field. So I think in addition to teaching these fundamental policy skills, students come back from the experience feeling more empowered, um, more prepared to serve as an advocate for their patients post-graduation. I think that's probably one of the, the most significant returns that, that our programs are seeing from us. Yeah, I, I think that's a really great point, right? An important point in that you're not only preparing these students to be able to advocate for Title VII funding and for mm-hmm. student debt and things that are really germane to the PA educational arena, but you're giving them the skills to be able to advocate for their patients and their communities, yeah. which is a critically important aspect. So. Well, kudos to you and your team for doing that. That I, I've seen it personally, and, and they're they're just so empowered. And to watch students go to the hill, you know, from the USC experiences, I'll just share that I have so many memories of students who were very afraid to go. You know, they're so intimidated by the yeah. process of going to speak to a representative or a senator and or the staffers, right? And in fact, when they get done. They just, they're glowing because they realize how important this is and also that they have a voice and that these individuals who represent them are actually really interested in what they have to say. And also that they underestimate their own expertise, right? So one of the things that I always tell uh, students that are are coming to our trainings is when you go into these Hill offices, at, at least on the subject that you're there to talk about, you're the smartest person in the room, right? So uh, these people want, want to learn from you. Um, you are the expert in what it is to be a PA student. You are the expert in what is uh, you know, challenging you on a, a day-to-day basis, whether it's higher costs for borrowing student loans, um, whether it's an inability to get clinical placements in a, in a timely and affordable way. Um, so don't underestimate the expertise that you bring to the table because it's, it's substantial. Well, let's shift gears just a little bit in that I think that most of us in the United States would say our political system is fractured or or uh, it's limping along and it is very frustrating to be on either side of the aisle. I think there is a sense from at least my perspective that we have this polar opposition these days that we didn't necessarily have maybe 20 years ago to this extent. And so how do you advise students who are going to the Hill to deal with issues around healthcare when they're visiting a person who represents a Republican community versus a Democratic one? And is it, is it just a waste of time to go to an office for somebody representing Republicans around issues of healthcare? Or are there strategies that you can use to help engage with them on that conversation? So... I'm not going to lie to you, and I'm not going to say that it works to take the same approach with a Democrat that you're taking with a Republican. I think you're right about the the increasing degree of polarization that we're seeing in D.C. But I think a way that we have found to navigate around that is to really be informed about what the members care about and where you can meet them. And I, I think one of the, for, the fortunate things I have working for a PA education association is 
our issues aren't terribly controversial. Um, we have something to say about rural health when we're going into Republican offices. We have something to say about the opioid epidemic when we're talking to Joe Manchin in, in West Virginia, uh, who's, who's been in the news quite a bit lately. So I think a, a key part of um, our advocacy strategy is being incredibly well-informed about where we're most likely to meet make progress with the folks that we're talking to and really focusing on those elements of our policy agenda that have the greatest potential to move in particular offices. So I'm going to be talking about something differently with Karen Bass's staff than I am with uh, Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema or um, John Barrasso. But I, I think you would be surprised about who some of our strongest champions are on the Hill. So just to, to give you a little bit of a story, um, last, it, well, I guess it was a few years now, um, when we were working on the student documentation issue where uh, preceptors could use medical student documentation by verifying it, but had to re-perform MP and PA student documentation. Our biggest champion on resolving that issue was John Barrasso, who is an incredibly conservative Republican from Wyoming. So I, I think that's just a great example of how we have issues that we can talk to Republicans about. We have other uh, places where we'd like to see new investments in the National Service Corps, Title VII, and that's where we tend to rely more on our Democratic friends. But um, there are very few offices, I think, where we wouldn't have something to say with them and where we couldn't find common ground, even in sort of this broader environment of polarization. Yeah, I agree. I, I was also surprised by that. And, and I think uh, having come from both Arizona, where I resided at the time that I was in L.A., um, and also, you know, representing California for the program, I had a chance to go to both offices. As, as I'm sure you remember, I would go to Senator Kyle's office or Senator Flake's office or um, Senator McCain, who I, I just really enjoyed getting to know over the years from uh, sharing on the, the same flight with him to D.C. from Phoenix. And th they love veterans and, and that has a veteran who became a PA and as a, a profession that was founded initially on veterans, I think there is some story to tell there too. So I, I think you're absolutely right. It's just uh, craft your message and, and make sure your personal story connects on something they care about. So you mentioned Karen Bass, uh, Representative Bass is uh, uh, one of the front leading nominees or candidates for office as the mayor of Los Angeles. So what is that going to mean for PAEA to potentially lose uh, one of your biggest advocates in Congress? Yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly a loss. Um, you know, it's been a pleasure working with uh, Congresswoman Bass's staff for, for a number of years. But I think, you know, when we plan out our work, uh, both in the short term and, and in the long term, we're really um, focused on diversifying our relationships so that we're not in a predicament where um, we're solely reliant upon one office to kind of carry our water. So I think particularly over the past couple of years, we have dedicated significant time to branching out to the offices um, that we, we think are most likely to serve as champions for us moving forward. And there's really a, a great cadre of folks who have been elected over the past couple of years who are really interested in health professions education issues. Um, one that I'll, I'll just call out is Lauren Underwood from Illinois, former uh, Actually, a former fellow with the American Association of Colleges and Nursing, previously worked at HHS under the Obama administration um, and is a, a nurse and, and former nurse educator. And so we have had tremendous collaborations with that office over the past couple of years on the issue of 
uh, maternal health disparities in particular. She is the, the lead on the Black Maternal Health Caucus and the lead on the Black Maternal Health Monomus Act. So I think that's just one example of uh, sort of the intentional focus that we have put into broadening out our, our base of champions. And that's sort of the rationale, like I was talking about earlier, about getting involved in these broader health policy issues is by um, stretching a little bit and putting some time into working on issues where we haven't conventionally spent much time. We've been able to, to create this new cadre of champions that I think will put us in a good position, um, even after uh, Congresswoman Bass retires later this year. Fantastic. Well, let's talk about some of the hot topics in politics that PAEA is interested in right now. What are some sure. of the things that you all are working on? Yeah. So um, right now we are in the middle of the budget and appropriation season. So just to, to give you a little bit of background on that, um, each year for discretionary programs, uh, Congress is responsible for adjusting the level of funding that it, it provides. So for uh our purposes, we are most interested in the programs funded by HRSA, the Health Resources and Services Administration. There are a number of programs under Title VII uh, that serve to support curriculum development, uh, broaden access to clinical rotations, provide scholarships for disadvantaged students to address some of our priorities in the DEI space. And so that's really the work that um, we are most in intensely engaged in right now is making the rounds of appropriators and also working in concert with um, several coalitions who are also active in health professions education to really make the case for increased funding for some of these programs. And you know, I'll just give you an example. You know, with scholarships for disadvantaged students, that is one of the only investments made directly by the federal government in expanding access to health professions education for underrepresented minority students. Can you guess how many programs were funded as of the last cycle? I'm going to guess three. You were very close. Five. Five, Five. programs okay. out of 287 were funded. So if this is a, a strategic priority of the association as it is, we just need to get funding levels significantly above what they have been historically. And so currently Title VII and Title VIII programs are funded at about $800 million a year. We've joined with the Health Professions Nursing uh, Education Coalition to call for a funding level of $1.5 billion. So almost a doubling of funding um, over the FY22 levels. Um, in addition to the appropriations advocacy that we're working on, um, we're also working on strengthening our outreach to agencies. Like I said, um, there are often regulatory issues that are important to programs like the CMS student documentation issue. Um, so actually yesterday, I and uh, PAU's president, Carrick Brothers, met with the administrator, Persa, uh, who just got appointed a couple of months ago to really give her an overview of uh, PA education and our policy priorities. And one area of potential collaboration moving forward with them is going to be expanding access to community health centers uh, for PA programs uh, trying to place students there. What we have found from our data is that 40% of programs currently aren't placing students at health centers, um, and 57% of uh, those who aren't are facing barriers. So really working with uh, the agency to see uh, where we can break down barriers, what financial incentives can be made available to, to health centers to try to grease the wheels and, and make clinical placements a little bit easier. That's a really great example from my own perspective. The community health centers have historically been underfunded and therefore 
have really valid reasons why they don't want to be participating in the training of students because they don't have enough space for students. They don't have enough providers. Uh, the providers are already busy trying to increase access to care. But it seems like the federal government has the best opportunity to expand funding so that these vital organizations are well-funded, but also tie that funding to education. Because if they want to build a pipeline of health professions from those communities back to those communities, they have to start with the community health centers. And it's a critically challenging issue. Here in Arizona, I'll tell you that uh, fortunately, my new boss is the chair of the AHEC grant. He's the principal investigator of the AHEC grant for Arizona. And so he has a really robust program for, for uh, health education here. And he's providing significant funding through the AHEC grant from HRSA for the community health centers. So I'm, I'm hopeful that that will open up more opportunities for PA students to train here in Southern Arizona, because to me, that makes the greatest sense, right? We want to partner with the communities that are struggling for access to care, get them the providers that they need through their own communities because they're already mindful of the issues and challenges that those communities face and, and get them trained and get them deployed back there after they've been training as a PA student in those communities. Yeah, and you know, I think that was an area of emphasis that we made when we were, we were speaking with the administrators. There is an evidence base for this already on the physician side. Um, so I, I don't are you familiar with the teaching health center graduate yes. medical education program? Yeah. Yeah. So um so THC GME was established in the ACA. And so um, like many programs established in the ACA, we're starting to see some of the long-term outcomes research. And what we're finding is that 57% of residents who complete their residency training in a THC are staying in an underserved community post uh, entering the, the workforce permanently. So um, it's a model that we would love to see replicated on the PA side. Um, we have legislation on the Hill that uh, would actually establish uh, a demonstration program to this effect. Um, so that, that's another thing that we, we pitched during that meeting. Nice. Now, another way that, that the federal government invests in underserved communities or medically, you know, medical shortage areas is the National Health Service Corps. So can you talk a little bit about what PAEA is doing related to NHSE? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we are actually going through an interesting paradigm shift with the National Health Service Corps, um, even from, from when I started working in uh, the health workforce space. So historically, the issue has always been chronic underfunding for the National Service Corps. So they operate a scholarship program, a loan repayment program, um, and also provide support on the state level to, to various state administered loan repayment programs. And what we have seen is that historical funding levels, HRSA was only able to fund about 10% of clinicians who applied for the scholarship program and about 40% who applied for uh, the, the federal loan repayment program. And so um, a lot of the advocacy that we've been doing over the past couple of years on the National Service Corps has been like uh, our, our advocacy on the Title VII front, just trying to dramatically increase funding levels. And one of the silver linings of the pandemic and the federal response to the pandemic was an increased focus on, on workforce issues. So um, when Congress passed the American Rescue Plan Act last year, um, it included $800 million in one-time funding for the NHSC, which allowed HRSA to make awards to all eligible applicants for both the scholarship and loan repayment programs last year. 
So uh, I, I was actually just looking at the numbers. We went from a situation where there were a little over 100 uh, PA students who are participating in the scholarship program to over 500 as of uh, the last year. So the paradigm shift is we've gone from a, a problem of having chronic underfunding to the a problem of actually not having broad enough awareness among PA students and graduates that, that this exists as an opportunity to really um, lower the cost of financing their, their education. And so what we've been doing over the past six months or so is really trying to build out the resources that we have to, to spread the word about the program. So we've done webinars with uh, HRSA. Um, we have actually just started building a new NHS resource page so that uh, students can hear from alumni about their experience participating with the program. Um, they can navigate all the state loan repayment options and the other options to see what's best for them. And that's actually rolling out today. So um, great timing to be able to, to share that with you on, on the, the recording here. Yeah, to me, it's just crazy, right? So when I was at USC over that decade, we had about 49 scholars. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think the first year I got there, 2000, I was interviewing in 2000, October 2010 when um, nine or 10 of those students from those classes were awarded the, the scholarship. And, and that may have been a single year where they did a, a large appropriation again, like you just mentioned. And then every year after is typically two to three. And then just this last class before I left USC had uh, uh, at least eight or nine. And so I think for me to watch those students be debt free or close to debt free, right? They have undergrad debt in many instances, but um, debt free from PA school. And, uh, and the difference it makes for them moving forward economically for them and their families to be able to, to do that and, and really the, the catch is you practice general medicine, primary care medicine in an underserved community for two to three years, depending on how many years you take that scholarship, is just astounding because then you do your time and then you can decide, is primary care still the best thing for me? Now, obviously, NHSE is hoping that you'll stay committed to that community. And in many instances, they do. But I think it is a uh, amazing program. So I don't know. Did you get a chance to listen to Steve Neal from a couple weeks ago from Indian Health Services? Yeah, I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so Steve was talking about this, and uh, you know, from his perspective, he left a underserved community in South Los Angeles and moved to uh, the Navajo Nation to be a PA there, and has been there for a long time now. And to hear him talk about their financial uh, stability because of that after going to one of the more expensive programs in the United States is really amazing. So I think it's, it's something that everybody should check out. Yeah. I, I think that's a story that's really borne out by the data. I think one of the reasons why it's been so easy to advocate for the national health service Corps is we have really robust outcomes data, um, especially compared to, to some of the other programs that HRSA funds. And, you know, what we're seeing from, from the data is 80% of NHSC alumni continue to practice in an underserved community after the completion of their service commitment. That's so, strong data. Strong data. Strong data. Um, yeah, it, it's not always necessarily the the site um, where they're practicing at for their uh, their service commitment, but it the evidence is there to show a durable uh, impact from this investment. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. We talked at the beginning on the outset. We talked about uh, the timeline for change in Congress and to get bills finally into place. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe use an example of one of our best wins in the last decade? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think if you take a, a health policy course at the undergraduate or the graduate level, there are things that there are multiple things that have to be in place for legislation to move, right? So um, you need to have good policy that's backed by data. You need to have a strong advocacy effort. But arguably, the most important element, at least in my opinion, is having the right political environment, but also the right cultural environment, right? So we have seen more legislative and regulatory progress over the course of the past two years than I, I think I have, have ever seen. I think a lot of people in this town have ever seen. And the reason why that's the case is because the public members of Congress and congressional staff were seeing images on their TV every day of people not having access to care, people dying because workforce shortages were neglected for, for such a long period of time. So moving things that we have sought to move has been much easier over the past two years. But I, I will say that hasn't been the situation for the entire time I've been working at, at PAEA. Um, you know, we had uh, our, our Keystone legislation with Representative Bass that we were trying to move in a divided Congress with the Republican administration. So a lot of advocacy really is building infrastructure, building momentum in times when you know things just aren't going to move very quickly. I think in the vast majority of cases, when, especially when you're trying to spend new money and create new programs, it can create, it, it, it can last, you know, five, seven, 10, <laughs> 10 years, maybe even longer. And I know that's the case with, with some of AAPA's priorities to, to move legislation. But that's not to say that if the political environment and the culture environment isn't right, that advocacy isn't useful, right? Because all these things still need to be in place. Like you need people that you uh, can call on and that you're able to move on the hill when the, the right political environment strikes. So yeah, I'll just give you an example of, of something that passed this year. Um, I've said in the, the past that um, we are very active in the rural health space and particularly on uh, clinical site legislation. So um, we collaborated with the offices of Tina Smith um, and a few folks on the House side on the development of uh, new legislation called the Rural Moms Act. Um, that was something that we started in 2019. And it's really getting uh, to some of the things that we've talked about earlier. So um, facilitating placements in underserved settings and rural communities on the basis that students are more likely to graduate there uh, once they uh, or to practice there once they uh, complete the program. And so that was three years of building co-sponsors, talking to committee staff, bringing in students, bringing in program directors. And then the right political moment struck and we were able to get it included in the omnibus bill that was passed uh, a couple of months ago. And so I think, again, if you think that you are going to change the world in uh, like one meeting or one advocacy <laughs> day, you're probably setting yourself up for disappointment. Yeah. I, I, again, like I said before, when I'm talking to students, I really try to paint the picture that they're one part of this multi-year movement that will eventually result in these things that we want getting passed into law. Yeah, if you think about issues like hospice and addiction and opioid addiction, I mean, I, I remember being on the Hill advocating for those issues for probably three to five years yeah. before we saw anything happen. And then you're right, suddenly it became an issue that was important enough to a broader audience that it got through. So patience and, and, a, and a strong uh, foundation of your messaging and advocacy work beforehand. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Well, Tyler, uh, this has been fantastic and so informative. Were there any other things you were hoping to share with our audience before we let you go? Yeah, I think um, I, I would just say PAEA is here to be a resource for you. Um, if you are interested in providing advocacy training to your students, if you're interested in bringing a member of Congress to your program, if there's a concern that you're seeing at your program that we're not aware of, um, please let us know because we're, we're here to, to be helpful to you. Um, and a lot of the things that we're able to achieve are through partnerships with our, our faculty and our students. So um, please don't ever hesitate to reach out. Fantastic. And I think we'll we'll make sure that some of the links to your grassroots advocacy network and uh, the ability to get action alerts are on our uh, podcast website as well so that people can find that link as they're listening to you. Fantastic. Tyler, thank you. So good to see you again and uh, wish you the best in this coming year of uh, your advocacy work. And please say hello to all the people at PAEA. Absolutely. We'll do it. Thank you so much, Kevin. We want to thank Tyler Smith for his time and insights on the important issues we face in our national political venues. Tyler provided us with some outstanding information related to the National Health Service Corps and their scholarships, Title VII funding, and the Student Health Policy Fellowship. Tune in next week as we speak with former PAEA president, Dr. Justine Strande Olivera, from her home in Portugal. Dr. Strande Olivera shares her perspectives on the profession, and we learn about her new career as a novelist with her upcoming historical fiction titled, The Moon is Backwards. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life, and thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of the University of Arizona.